as we sing our praises to God together.
That's why we, uh, we gather each week to um, experience the presence of God, to ask for His grace in each of our lives, to draw us closer to Him and to each other. And uh, we're glad that you are here to be a part of that. The church is so vital to our faith and uh, our worship. And so we are just glad to have you here, whether you're here in person or joining us by streaming. Glad that you're part of this worship time today. If you're here, let me invite you to take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here, who are here in worship. Maybe take a little bit extra time, maybe move some other places. As we continue in worship together, I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has lavished on our lives. By his stripes, we are healed. By his nail-pierced hands, we're free. By his blood. Jesus overcame it all. 
many ways, worship by its nature is corporate, is participatory. We sing together, we read scripture together, we, we give together, and uh, we pray together. And this morning, we want to do something we've done a couple of times over the last couple of months of uh, inviting you to offer prayers. And uh, what I'll do is just kind of walk us through a few things. We'll begin with Thanksgiving, we'll think about the world, we'll think about our own needs. And uh, let me, I just want to invite you, encourage you. I know it can be a little bit intimidating to stand up to offer a sentence or two of prayer, but uh, it's, it's one of the things we do as a church, we pray together. So let me invite you to, uh, to join, to, to help each other, to pray with each other as we spend these next few moments praying together. Let's take a, just a few seconds to quiet our hearts before God, and, uh, and then we will offer our prayers. Father, we have so many reasons to give thanks to you. We pray now that you will hear our prayers of praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we have so much to, for which to give thanks to you. We also know that there are burdens and concerns in our world, in our nation. Hear our prayers now for the needs of our world, for the needs of our nation.
Father, we pray for your church in the world. We pray that uh, you will hear our prayers now as we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are in difficult circumstances, for your people who are sharing the gospel in various places of the world. Father, we pray for the needs of our lives and those who are close to us. People struggling with grief or illness, pain, things in our families, places where we work, relationships, the future, all of these things. Lord, hear our prayers now as we bring to you the needs of our own lives. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers, those spoken and those unspoken. We pray you'd open our eyes daily to your grace. Make us more and more grateful for all of your blessings. I pray that you would help us to to be known as people who are grateful, who are loving, merciful. And we ask, Father, that You will continue to work in us, in this world. We offer our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remembering the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Not that I have already attained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Jesus has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Please stand as we sing together.
Father, we pray that you will indeed show us Christ, help us to hear you, to see you, and to open our hearts to you. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. wonder why the cross is the most prominent symbol of a Christian faith? Why, why the cross? Why not an empty tomb? I know it might be hard to make jewelry that looked like an empty tomb, but the cross is easier, but, you know, why not the empty tomb? Why, why not the Bible? Why not a sword? Why not the Ten Commandments? Why, why the cross? What is it about the cross that makes it the most prominent symbol through the centuries of our faith? There is something about the cross that, that symbolizes what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That all the other symbols, as important as they are and as helpful as they are, and if you look around at the stained glass windows, you see different symbols here on them, and they represent different things. And, but ultimately, the, the, the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. And it's that question that's been going through my mind as I think about these Lenten sermons. Thinking about why is the cross at the center of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And, and I think that that question that is something Paul is answering as he writes here to the Philippian Christians. It, and and he, he's, so, he's so enamored with this 
that he actually says he, he writes in tears because of what he sees them struggling with. And, and as Paul writes, he, he talks about the fact that, that there are actually people in the church who are enemies of the cross. Imagine, people in the church who Paul, with tears in his eyes, says they are actually enemies of the cross. And I think he says, what he means by that is that there is something about the cross, what makes it so vital to our faith, is there's something about the cross that judges us. Now when I talk about judging us, I don't mean condemning us, but more the sense of of revealing us. That sense of standing before a judge and, and, and being told guilty or innocent, right or wrong. There's something about the cross that pierces into us and reveals who we are. What's inside of us. Sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, We're pretty good at wearing masks, about doing the right things. As I was pondering this, I was thinking it's sort of like trying to buy a watermelon. You know, you know that trying to find a watermelon. You go to the store and you think, okay, let's find a watermelon that's that's you know that's good. That's going to be you know crunchy and crisp and have that good flavor and not mealy and soft and you know disgusting. And I know there are all kinds of theories about how you buy a watermelon. You know, there's a thumping thing and what it looks like and all that. But I'll be honest with you, it's all supposition. Nobody has yet found the perfect way of doing that. How do you know if a watermelon is what you want it to be? If, it's, if the inside is, is the kind of watermelon that you really want to dig into and eat, how do you know that? There's only one way to know. You take a knife and you cut it open. And when you open it, you find out. And up to that point, it's guesswork. And I think in one way Paul is saying to us, that's what the cross does to us. The cross cuts through all of the stuff that we put up, all the facade, all the walls, all the masks, all the ways in which, in which we are trying to live our lives to impress people, maybe even to impress God. And, and all the stuff that we do, the, the cross cuts through all that and says, this is what you really like. what Paul is saying to the Philippians. The Philippians are really, their church is struggling. They, got, they have both sides of, of the problems that plague every group of Christians. Every single group of Christians. On the one hand, we didn't read this, but beginning in verse 2 through verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul describes this one group of the church who are, for lack of a better term, legalists. They are all about following the law, following the rules, and, and they are proud of the fact that they do it all. And that you can't be a follower of Jesus unless you follow the strict rules. And Paul's response to them is, yeah, I've, I've been there, done that. In fact, if you want to see somebody who followed the rules, I dare anybody to, to put their rule life against what I did. And he starts giving a list of all the ways in which he followed the rules better than anyone else. But the other, you also have a group of people that he describes just briefly in verse 19. These are people that he says live for the, the opposite of that. They're taking their freedom to the point where they do whatever they want to do. There are no rules. 
And he talks about their lusts, their desires, their, you know, all the ways in which they, they live simply to do every, whatever it is that they want to do. And you see the two extremes, and every group of Christians has them. And we judge each other about it. On the one hand, you've got people saying, you don't follow any rules? What's wrong with you? You're not a Christian. And then you have the other side of it saying, you follow rules at all? What's wrong with you? You're not a Christian. And Paul is saying, you're both wrong. Why? Because both of those extremes, both of those perspectives are focused on us. Look at how much I do. Look at how much I accomplish. Look at how well I follow the rules. Look at me. I don't have to do anything. I don't, I, can do, I don't have to follow any rules. I do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. It's all about me. And the truth is, both perspectives are about me. Both perspectives are about me, self. And Paul is saying, that's why you're enemies of the cross. Because the cross reminds us, focuses us, and tells us that being a follower, being a Christian, is not about me, it's about Jesus. It's not how well you follow the rules. It's not about even how much freedom you have. It's about Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you realize there are some rules that are really helpful to us. And when you follow Jesus, you realize you don't want to do everything that you want to do. You don't want to live selfishly. You want to live like Jesus. I think that's why Paul says earlier, makes this audacious statement in verse 17, follow me, do what I do. And, in, you know, if you, we heard somebody say that, we might think that's a little bit arrogant. But Paul realized, he's not saying, do this because I'm perfect and I figured it all out. He's saying, follow me because I have figured out one thing. And that is, to be a follower of Jesus is to be willingly selfless. And that's what he's calling them to do. To follow him in that pathway of willing selflessness. I think he's trying to remind them, remember how all this got started for you here in Philippi. Remember, I was there when it began. And the church began with, with Paul, with, with me and Silas being beaten to within an inch of our lives and thrown into prison. It was in Philippi, in that prison, that Paul and Silas were singing hymns in the middle of the night. And the earthquake comes and all the prison doors open. And nobody leaves, and the jailer and his family are transformed because of what they see in Paul. But it began with Paul suffering, being selfless. And he says to the church, remember that. You know. It's not about me following rules. It's not about me having all the freedom that I want to. Because if I could do whatever I wanted to do, I wouldn't choose to be beaten. I wouldn't choose to be imprisoned. But I did it because... That's what happens when you follow Jesus. That's what the cross calls us to, a life of willing selflessness. I mean, in many ways, embracing the cross, the opposite of being enemies of the cross, is, is embracing everything Jesus says, but particularly in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. When you embrace the cross, then being blessed by, because you're poor in spirit, 
being blessed because you are you have committed yourself to be merciful being blessed because you are following Jesus to to care to mourn over the pain and the agony and the sins of the world to be blessed to be humble and meek to be blessed even though you're persecuted that makes sense only when you embrace the cross if we reject the cross none of that makes any sense it makes no sense to go the second mile if the cross isn't in the middle of our lives. It makes no sense to turn the other cheek if the cross isn't in the center of our focus. If we're just focusing on ourselves, why would we do any of that? That's why a lot of people look at us and say, why would you live like that? Why would you forgive that person after what they did to you? I wouldn't do that. It's because of the cross. It's because we have embraced the cross as the way of life. When you do that, the Beatitudes make sense, the Sermon on the Mount makes sense, everything Jesus says, everything the Scripture says, it makes sense. It has meaning, purpose. I think that starts, that mindset starts with an acknowledgement of our own sin. There is a need to acknowledge our own sin. It starts there because until we acknowledge our sin, we really don't see the need for the cross. Until we acknowledge our own sin, it's really easy to say, look, I'm pretty good. Look at all the, look at all the ways in which I, I obey the law. Until we acknowledge our own sin, we're saying, look, I'll do whatever I want to. But it's in acknowledging our own sin that we recognize how desperately we need Jesus. How grateful we are for the cross. For what God has done for us in Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, it's a part of Moses uh, reviewing for the, the Israelites what God has done for them, all the things God has taught them. This is the, the you know, they've, they came out of Egypt, and, and of course, they didn't want to go, they didn't trust God to go into the promised land. And so, so God says to them, fine, then you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the people who were over the age of 20 when you left Egypt die. And so all of them have died, and now Moses is starting 40 years later with these people who are 60 years old and under. And he's reviewing everything for them because they were relatively young when all this happened. And he's reminding them of all the things God has done. But he's also reminding them of the way they need to think. And in chapter 9, verse 7, he says, remember how you rebelled against the Lord your God. Now, that seems an odd thing to, for him to say. I would expect him to say, remember how God brought you out of Egypt. And he does. Remember all the great things God did for you and has done for you. And he does. But he also says, remember your sinfulness. Remember your rebelliousness. Why do you need to remember that? Because if we forget, we forget it, we become arrogant. If we forget it, we begin to think we don't really need God all that much. I think that's why Paul says in verses 12 and 13 and 14 that... I've not yet achieved all this. I've not yet arrived. And if Paul hasn't arrived, 
be pretty interesting for any of us to claim that. You know, it makes me think of Jesus on that night of the, in the upper room, the night he's arrested and he's meeting with his disciples and he takes out the towel in the basin and he begins washing their feet. And Peter says, whoa, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, look, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any place with me. I think Jesus is saying to Peter, look, I know, Peter, you've made a lot of progress, but you still have pretty dirty feet. And we need to make progress. We should be making progress. It's important to make progress. But it's also important to recognize we still have dirty feet. And we never outgrow the need for the cross to wash us cleanse us. We never outgrow the need for Jesus. And until we embrace that truth, the cross will always be something that we're grateful for, but not something that really impacts our lives. But it's not just acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for God. It is also living in an eager expectation that Christ is reappearing. That, the, that this world is not the end. That God has plans beyond this world that we can't even begin to comprehend. That Jesus Christ, who has died and risen and ascended to heaven, is reappearing. And when he reappears, he's going to usher in the kingdom. Now, Paul is not saying that we ought to live only thinking about that day. Sort of, there were people, there have been people through the history of the church who, in, in a sense, have been so enamored with that day that they pack up their suitcase and they sit on their front porch and they're just sitting there waiting, looking at the sky for Jesus to come back. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living now in the spirit, in a recognition that Jesus is going to reappear. And when you begin to live like that, it changes how you live now. You live with a much bigger perspective, a much more eternal kind of mindset. You realize, as Paul says, you know, that, yes, I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm straining towards what's ahead. I'm living my life now because based on the reality and the truth that Jesus is reappearing and that has bearing on how I live now. Because everything I do has an eternal nature to it. Think about little babies. You know, we love little babies. But little babies live selfishly in the moment. I mean, they don't really think much. They can't, I don't think they have any ability, hardly at all, to think about what has happened in the past. Little infants. And they have no sense of the future at all. It's just the moment. My diaper's wet. I'm hungry. I need to sleep. Why are you poking me with that needle right now? You know, it's just the moment. It's all about the moment. And we love babies. And, and we cherish them and we nurture them. And they're a gift of God. But we don't really want to be like them. What Paul is saying, in fact, he even says, if you don't understand what I'm saying, then God will show you and you too can begin thinking more maturely. Paul can be a little sarcastic sometimes with what he says. Maybe you'll get it. Because you're thinking like an infant. All you're thinking about 
is the selfishness of the moment. You're not remembering anything about what God has done in the past. All the ways in which God has blessed you, nurtured you, cared for you, not the least of which is the cross. But you're also not thinking about the future. Not thinking at all that, that when Christ appears, everything about us is going to be revealed. Who we are, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna become the essence of who we have been making ourselves to be. Either people who trust Christ and being made more and more into his image, or people who live for self and become more and more and more about self. I think one of our issues is we so are so enamored with, with the selfishness of the moment that we live as if Jesus' reappearing isn't really going to happen. That doesn't mean we don't live for the moment. We do live in the moment. Paul says, I'm forgetting what's behind. And I think by that he means I'm forgetting all the stuff in the past that... that led me away from Christ. But what he's not saying is, I, I live in the pain and the agony and the burden of the past because Christ, I want Christ to set me free from that. But he's realizing, but he's also telling us that the future, thinking about Christ's return, that's not something to fear. It's something to anticipate. It's the moment when God will make, bring every, make everything right. All the, the ways of justice that we wrestle with. But it's also the time when, when, we are, when what's inside of us and what we've been creating and our passions and our attitudes and our motives and our desires are going to reach their fulfillment. That revelation. And it's the call of the church to live with that mindset. In his book, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon... Richard John Newhouse says that the church is called to acknowledge now what all the world will acknowledge then, that Jesus is Lord. I mean, isn't that what Paul writes in chapter 2? After he talks about how Jesus has emptied himself and become obedient to God and become a servant and given himself even to death, he says, but... He's going to be exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord every single time. And the call of the church now is to live with that mindset that our desire, our yearnings, our passions are to want to live so focused on Christ that what we want, as much as we fall short, our desire is that we would declare that He is Lord and that our lives are all about Him. And that's why the cross, though it's a symbol of death, is really the way of life. And embracing the cross is embracing the plan, the, the design, the will of God for all that He wants to do in the world that is focused on what Jesus has done on the cross. That we believe the way of the cross is the way of life, and that changes how we live.
But God wants to create in us and of us people who bear the image of Jesus, who think like Jesus and act like Jesus and, and, and love like Jesus. This is what he wants to do in us if we will be open to it. I read a book a few months ago, it's still a small little book by Ken Geyer. It's called Shaped by the Cross. And it's, it's, it's a series of meditations that, that he wrote based on his study of Michelangelo's sculpture of Piate. It is, it is this image of Mary holding the lifeless body of Jesus, her son. And, and it is a moving, moving thing. I mean, the artistry of this in itself is almost incomprehensible. But then there is something about this, this sculpture made of marble that is inspiring. But one of the things he talks about as he, as he talks about this, this image and the process of, of Michelangelo creating this image is that he said, you know, artists, they look at a, a block of granite or marble or stone or whatever it is they're creating. And, and what they really are doing is they, as they go through the process, they're chipping away what isn't a part of the image that they can envision is the stone. And he says, in a, really, what, what God is wanting to do in our lives is to chip away everything about us that isn't Jesus. He says, if, if the stone could feel and talk, it would cry out, stop doing that. That hurts. I don't like it. I, I want to do what I want to do. I want to feel, feel good. I don't want to go through all of that. And then you get to the end of it, and you look over, and you see what the artist has done with other blocks of stone and the beautiful images. And there's a sense of, at that moment, saying, oh, I wish I'd let the artist continue to do that. And he quotes another sculptor who says this. The stone just wants to be a stone. But the artist wants that stone to be art. And I am convinced that's what God wants to do with us. But it's a painful process. It's a, it's a surrendering process. It's a process of trusting God that he knows what he's doing. That the way of the cross truly is the way of life. As C.S. Lewis says in that famous statement, in the end there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. perspective of the cross is essential to which one of those ends we will find ourselves in. Gracious Father, you call us to 
challenging things, but it's only because you want to make something beautiful of us. You want to set us free. You want to transform us. Help us to understand that and to see that and to trust you for that. So much so that we will, with Paul, look to the cross and surrender. stand as we sing together. By grace alone, somehow I stand where sin once made me fear to dread.
receive a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.